Welcome to the 2023 Conscious Leaders Podcast Highlights episode. If you don't know me already, I'm your host, founder of Conscious Leaders, Ruth Franger. Quite apparently to us all, 2023 has been a year when we desperately needed great leaders to look up to and help us navigate more and more uncertainty. And, well, leaders have continued to step up and I've been there to hunt them down and hack into their brains so you can learn from their philosophy and practice. Personally, 2023 has been the year I've been settling into Stroud near Bristol. We moved here just a year ago and it's not easy meeting new people somewhere new, but I'm starting to feel a bit more like it's home. Having made a few friends, we've gone to some gigs and I've moved into a co-working space too. And besides the usual coaching programs for leaders, 2023 has been the year that we released the Next Level Leadership Scorecard. It's a free tool as aligned with the Next Level Leadership book that I wrote and it allows you to benchmark yourself against the top nine traits and behaviours of great people leaders. These are the ones featured in the book. Go to our website, consciousleaders.org.uk, and register for emails if you want to hear more. We're also collecting data for a State of Leadership in Tech report to be released in 2024. So if you're a senior leader in technology or you know one, then we'd love you to complete this. Visit consciousleaders.org.uk for more info. Right, okay, enough of all of that. On to our podcast highlights for 2023. If I were to offer two themes as a summary for this year, it would be trust and balance. To kick us off, let's hear from Renee Watson. She's founder of The Curiosity Box. And I would say she is one of the few leaders who is naturally very good at letting go and allowing autonomy in her team. This is a really rare trait to find someone who is deeply naturally good at this. And she's built a sense of collective responsibility that is very impressive. I asked her about how she fosters this kind of group buy-in practically. So we have an annual one-to-one where I go through what I call the value equation with each of my team members. And so this is a, we usually take about one to two hours with each person where I sit down and I go through the the three components of the value equation, which are money, how much they want to and need to be earning. Uh, The second thing is time and how they're spending their time now compared to how they want to be spending their time. And then the third thing is what's important to them. And that tends to be a discussion that goes beyond what's important to them in the workplace. So it's, it's a kind of a coaching session, really, where we look at where they are in their life and how they're spending their time. And then it's a sort of reciprocal, uh, sort of mutually beneficial thing of then how can the business support them to feel like they're living the life that they want to be leading? And how can they contribute to the business being successful? And that then becomes a synergistic kind of relationship. So by the time I'm coming to the point of having a conversation to say, look, our cash flow is really tight... I've already got a really clear understanding of where they're at financially, uh, what matters to them within that bigger picture, sort of beyond money. Uh, And because we've had some of those quite sometimes quite personal conversations, it means that that very practical, this is where we're at right at this moment conversation is much easier because the context is already there. Mm. So just to play that back to you, so check it's right so you're having a conversation about how much they're earning how they're spending their time and it sounds like a more like their purpose or like what they enjoy doing yeah and well. I have a little tool that I use for each one of those things so the um 
the first the money and time thing are fairly straightforward but for the how they what's important to them and how they're spending their time more broadly uh is i do just like a bullseye and i have i get them to limit to the center of the bullseye they have to put a maximum of five things in there that are the things they cannot live without so the things that normally go in there are things like family and um holiday or i you know in it, it will vary from person to person, but there will be something in there that fundamentally comes down to recharging themselves and human connection. Those are the two things that tend to be the themes of the things in the middle. Then the second layer of the bullseye, they get 15 things, which are things that they that are really important to them, that make them feel like they're, feel satisfied, feel happy and content. Some of those things might be things they used to do, but don't do anymore. Some of them might be things they've never done before, but have always sort of dreamed that one day they might. And some of them might be things that they already carve and out and protect time general, for. general, quite specific by this point? I they? force them to be very, very specific. Okay. I, I say I force them. I nurture and encourage them along to getting to a point where they're fairly specific. Because what we do, what goes into the value equation is I get them to pick three things that they're going to commit to and be accountable for doing more of by the next time we check in. So there'll be three very clear measurable objectives that come from those what's important hmm. things. So I'm getting a bit of a flavour for your leadership philosophy here without actually asking the direct question. So it sounds like you're somebody who is looking at the whole person and what they want in their life, work, everything, to see how you can support them broadly and is looking at how you can build connection between people between you and them and sort of value of that human connection yeah I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've created a workplace where people love to come and work I asked her about how else she created real human connection at work in terms of her own behavior and company practices yeah so we have a very flat structure and some of the we some of the ways we do that are and I mean, this often comes down to just day-to-day how people work and the, and the behaviour that you model. So I am very much a open person. So people come and talk to me. They've got ideas. I always listen. Love ideas. Uh, if there are problems, I'll be here to listen. And I try and approach the relationships I have with my team in a very uh, non-judgmental way so that people do genuinely feel safe to come and talk to me about stuff. Uh, I also approach or try and and properly get that flat structure by getting rid of old school names for things. So we don't have any C's. Uh, we have, you know, I'm I'm the head of explosions. We have a head of happiness. We have a production professor and everything engineer, a head of storytelling. Yeah, you know, I think words matter, and the fact that we have job titles that a are more on brand because we're all about the fun but b give people room to be able to shape and mold and own that that role themselves i think that creates a, a proper environment for a more collective approach to to working conversations i have regularly with coaching clients and i think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of leaders is letting go and letting people fly. Mm. Sounds like that's kind of one of your 
superpowers. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't know where that comes from uh, necessarily, but I think I am really conscious. I'm very aware of what my strengths and weaknesses are and what my limitations are. And I have absolutely no desire to be wasting my energy doing things that I'm not good at uh, or that I don't enjoy. So within that context, I think it's very easy to see. I know, I know the shape of the puzzle that I need to create and I know the pieces that I occupy in it. And there are all these other spaces that could be filled in all kinds of different ways. And so when you open that up and let people create their own size pieces, you just get something that I think is much richer and more interesting than if I tried to control everything. One podcast guest who's had to let go of control in a different way is Adam Healy. He was a partner at PwC and ran a very successful life in consulting. However, all of that came crashing down with severe burnout and a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And since then, he's been rebuilding in quite a different way. Adam describes here the extreme highs and lows and the journey that led to his recovery. It was, it was interesting. One of my bosses once described it as a roller coaster. And he actually said to me, you know, why does your life, why is working with you always such a roller coaster? And I think what he meant from that was there were times when I was brilliant and there were times where I was what I describe as the life and soul of the project or the night out or whatever it was. But then there's other times where I would be incredibly negative. Um, I remember the early days of my career, if someone proposed something new to me, my initial reaction would have been why that was a problem or why it wouldn't work. Very, very negative. But on other days, I'd have been really excited about it and it would be really positive. So when I look back now, at the time I only saw the depression, now I look back, I can see that it was this roller coaster. I can see the highs and I can see the lows. Now, when I, as I track that forward, I can start to see how the lows became deeper. Um, I had a particular trigger point in my own family where my, unfortunately, my, my father-in-law took his own life. And that was obviously the trigger of a very deep low. It was a very, very difficult time for me and the family and, and very upsetting. So that was very deep. But equally, when I look back at it, I can see the highs were getting more extreme as well. Um, emotionally, but also if I bring in the, the alcohol, which we, we maybe will talk about later, as that became more significant in my life, that was exacerbating the highs and the lows. So I guess that tracked through much of my career. And then unfortunately, COVID came along. And I, I don't necessarily like talking about this too much because COVID was difficult for everyone. And I don't want it to seem like it was harder for me than it was for you or for the next person, because it wasn't. But what it did do in, in me is again, it exaggerated those two extremes. So being locked in my room, my study, was really bad for the, the lows. It made me really sad, really upset. I got into my own head and that was quite dangerous. Um, but then when we came out of lockdown, the reverse happened. I wanted to get out. I was the first person back to the office. I wanted to go for a drink. I wanted to get my teams in. I wanted to have dinners out. And I could see all of that sort of stuff building. So I guess that's the, the sort of high level story that took me to this time last year. Then it went wrong. Um, it ultimately went wrong because the high became too high and I behaved in a way that was not appropriate. And 
that's incredibly upsetting to look back on, but it's what happened. And, and in reality, that led to the next part of the story, which is what's happened over the last year. And I wouldn't change that for anything. That moment when I walked into a psychiatric hospital for the first time was horrifically difficult. And when I look back on it today, all I remember is, is darkness. Um, it happened to be a cold and miserable rainy day in March, but all I remember was dark, cold rain. Um, and then I remember the day I came out as almost the opposite. It was like the lights had come on, it was sunny, it was bright, it was cheery. Mm. Um, so it was a big transition, but it was horrific to get into. To get into. When I created the book, which pulls out the top traits and behaviours of podcast, podcast guests like you, one of the latter ones I talk about is vulnerability. It's, it's not as commonly shown, but it is the one I've seen that makes the massive, the most significant immediate ripple effect suddenly all the walls down and and that's powerful right to better to better transform someone's openness like in a in a few minutes yeah i think so um i i personally think vulnerability is really important because why would i open up to someone who wasn't willing to open up to me and yes it's like a how can i trust you if if you don't also have something to share because if I can't see you, why, do, why should I let you see Completely. me? Completely. Like, yeah. and, and actually, I know this is about me, I guess, rather than, than you. But one of the reasons I'm very happy opening up and talking to you is because you did the same. You know, your, your partner's obviously a very good friend of mine. And the two of you opened up very honestly about your story. And that, in many ways, gives me the confidence to do the same. And, and that makes it feel very comfortable to, to share this with you. You showed your vulnerability, and then I feel comfortable to show mine in return. Mm. There's uh, a word for it we talk about in, in mindfulness circles, which sounds like a really lame thing to say, but it's true. Um, they call it common humanity, okay. where you um, we connect because we suffer, and we see the suffering of another, and then we yeah, connect. Yeah, and I think that's true. And I think with, with that story I shared, as I, as I mentioned, I did talk about alcohol towards the end of it. And I don't recall the exact day it went out, but... On the Friday of that week, I was just about to pack up and go home. And one of my team walked in and asked if I had a few moments. And obviously I did, because it was clearly important. And he started out by just saying, I drink too much. And then we looked at each other and then we talked about it. And I remember that conversation went on. I was actually about to run to a train and, and, and get home because I thought I'd be home early on a Friday. Um, and we talked for two hours. And all because I showed my vulnerability, he showed his. We had something common to talk about and we talked. And was this someone like a peer or was this someone who worked for you? Or? No, it was somebody who worked for me. Because oh. it, it, I mean, it feels like, I'm going to again make some slight generalizations, but in our noisy, busy world, everyone's running for something. You're running for a train, running for this, got to get back for the family, got to get to work, got to get to the next meeting. So it feels like there is a dearth, like a real gap of space for each other, really, because we don't, we don't, we don't really have enough time. So we, we, we don't make enough time for really big moments like that. Like you could have been like, oh, great. Yeah, I need to wrap this up in five because I've got to get my train. But for whatever reason, you were like, hmm, no, this is important. And you stayed for two hours. 
Yeah, and and I think um, it's interesting because we talk about time a lot, and we all have the same amount of time. We all have twenty four hours in a day. It's then up to us to choose how we allocate that time out. And as business people, we have some time that obviously has to go to our families and to sleeping and things like that. But then we're left with a, an amount of time where we're in the office and, and we can do stuff. And I think, you know, we've talked to, not in this podcast yet, but we've talked a lot, you know, together about leadership. And for me, leadership, the traditional view of leadership, obviously, is setting direction and strategy and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's obviously important. And in the roles that I've always done, connecting with clients, selling, you know, those are all really key. Um, but equally, delivering programs was, was really key. And in that role as a, a leader who delivers big, complex programs, you're expecting the people in your teams to trust you and to give you a lot of their time and emotion and, you know, and, and a lot of effort. And in order for them to do that, they need to trust you and they need to believe that you're there for them. So this will sound, in that particular example, the reason I stayed and talked was because I thought it was the right thing to do at the time, okay. But equally, I thought it would help me, which it did, emotionally it did help me. But also, I knew that if, if I gave that particular individual two hours of my time on a Friday evening, there'll be another time where he would give me an awful lot more mm. and and therefore I think as leaders we have to be we, we you know we have to be sensible at how we use our time sometimes spending an hour with a member of staff who is struggling is way more important than that status report that you're sending to a client that they're probably not going to read until Monday morning anyway when does an employee become a priority over a client for example a difficult balance to strike no doubt but it sounds like Adam knows how to prioritise here. Going back to Adam's journey, he walks us through exactly what it is like to have bipolar disorder. Up until I was diagnosed, I didn't know I had it. And, and I say that a little bit flippantly, but I, I don't mean it as such. Like we said before, I knew I had depressions, but I, I was totally unaware of mania. And I remember when it was diagnosed, um, my, my wife obviously wanted, wanted to understand a lot more about it. And we, we bought some books and we both did quite a lot of reading. And her first question to me while I was actually in hospital, she came to visit me and, and she asked if I believe it. You know, do I, do I believe the, the diagnosis? And I said, no. And You didn't believe it? No, no. And the look she gave me was that, oh my God, here we go again, look. Cracky, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And... And I said to her, well, I, I see the depressions, get it, but I, I don't get this mania, really. Uh, and, and she sort of chuckled, an awkward chuckle, and just said, I don't see the depression, you probably hide it. All I see is this insanity, this, this mania. And she gave a couple of examples, <laughs> the nicer examples, maybe, let's say. Um, you know, my, the level of work I was doing, um, I was at the time out till God only knows what time of night, but I was in the gym at six o'clock the next morning because I was, you know, really keen to get and my weight under control. And this is for set, not set periods, but these is for periods. You're yeah. going into periods of yeah. low and then periods yeah. of high. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, absolutely. And the time she was specifically talking about had been the preceding six months where 
now that I know what the symptoms are, it's almost, I use the word comical cautiously because there was nothing funny about it. But to read the symptoms and to map them onto my behaviours during that period of time, it's, it's a one-to-one match. It really, really is. Um, so now that I have had the diagnosis, now that I look back on it, I can see what a big factor it was in my life. And one of the activities I did in, in hospital was to map out some of those cycles and to pick out times in my life where I was definitely in depression and when I was going through an episode of, of, of mania. And I was looking at the things that happened in each of those phases of life. And, and it's interesting to reflect on because the depression ones were horrible for me at the time. But actually, when I talk to people about them who were there, they don't remember them. They, they didn't see them, really. Mm. But when I, when I talk about episodes of mania, they saw them. And a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of close friends about this, and a lot of people have said, we worried about you at that time. We thought something was wrong. And a lot of them are like, why didn't we say something? Um, and I don't, I don't blame anyone else at all for, for any of that. You know, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I see anything? So in some ways, it's one of those strange diseases, illnesses, whatever we want to call it, conditions, where until I knew I had it, I didn't know I had it. And now I know I had it, I can medicate correctly. And, and therefore, I kind of don't have it again, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So, so does that mean you don't experience periods of mania now, particularly? It, it means that I have the tools that I need to be able to control them. Mm-hmm. So I, I never wanted to take medication. That to me was a red line. I wasn't going to do that. And, and I told my psychiatrist that. And, and he said, you know, quite rightly, he couldn't make me take the medication. But if I didn't then how could he help me? This was going to be hard. Yeah, it was yeah. going to be tricky. So I agreed and I took it. And from week one, I could feel the difference that it made. Mm. It, you know, it alters the way my mind functions. Not, not in a bad way, not in a horrible way. It's nothing like that. But it just feels like it's calming me a little bit. It just feels like it's holding my mind within situations where in the past it may have... Mm. exploded out if that makes sense and you said that the mania was kind of epitomized by like lots of spending lots of just working long hours in it so it's just just everything at full speed would that be fair or yeah yeah everything at full speed yeah um i remember you know certain situations it was just like bright light it was just everything at the yeah just everything at full speed and and no sleep feel like well it felt great like, and this is one of the hard things about being diagnosed with something like this, because you, I mean, I'm fortunate that my, my diagnosis isn't by any stretch the most serious. Um, and the drugs that I'm taking are by no means the most, the strongest drugs. Um, sometimes if, if the diagnosis was more serious and the drugs were more powerful, it would almost dull those senses a lot more than it does. And And I think many people who try and take those drugs feel they feel numbness they feel nothingness to some degree and you've moved from this world of excitement into this world of boredom 
And, and that's really difficult to handle. I think in my case, I'm quite lucky because I did love the excitement of the world before, but it became so clear to me that that was causing me and others damage. Mm. And therefore, leaving it behind isn't so painful. Moving topic now to a guest who has been on the Conscious Leaders podcast before. He's called Daniel Hulm and he's CEO of Satalia. He's an incredibly successful person, successful speaker in the area of AI, and his company underwent a successful buyout by WPP recently. So he's, this is a massive achievement. He's also a big a fan of autonomy and accountability. He's a big fan of sustainable and social impact. But he does have some controversial opinions about power and power dynamics in organisations. Imagine if, you know, we had a group of people that were learning how to play chess and I brought them into a room and, and asked them to observe a number of chess games that were going on and to identify the grandmaster out of this group. The, 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 they're not going to be able to identify the grandmaster because all they see are incremental moves. They can't, they can't think and it would only take a grandmaster to be able to spot the grandmaster right, yeah and and so the the problem that i have is that people think that they can they can make that decision and let me give you a, a separate example if, if i said to people in my company um design a logo for our, our company uh that's the first test the second test is come up with a um a fair pay allocation structure uh, um, create some pseudo code for the traveling salesman problem, or write some Python for a cross matrix multiple um, cross matrix um, correlation. Anybody that doesn't have any expertise in the last two are like, what are you talking about? I don't know how to do code. I don't know how to like. You're talking a different language. Everybody will have a go at doing a logo. <laughs> Everybody will probably have a go at doing doing a, a fair allocation of pay. And my argument is that they are not qualified mm. to do. Well, that. I mean, we can all be prime minister, can't we? Yeah, we're exactly, all like, exactly. we're all in the pub going. Like, like, yeah. like if I ran this country, is you know, there, is there, yeah. you know you're, you're, you're in some respect you're doing you know somebody a disservice who's been studying that field that domain design in this case for 20 years and you, if you think you can do it in without having expertise it's and, and, and that that's the, the trick challenge sometimes is that people don't appreciate the complexity and the designer might never be able to explain to them why the design should be like that because mm. it would be trying to take them on a 20-year journey mm. it feels like taking people on a journey is what a good leader should do so communicating to the right level so that people come with you know it's just some fascinating stuff you're thinking of doing and you need people on board right in in some cases yeah and again I would controversially argue in some cases they should trust me in the same way that I trust them to develop logos and to write code and I don't they don't have to take me on a journey they don't have to take me on a journey you're their employer like they've come to you with some kind of psychological contract that's where well I'm but I'm I don't own Satalia anymore and uh, yes. and and but the and the many, you know many of the leaders people are in leadership positions they don't have any ownership of the com- company but yet at the same time they're asked to justify their decisions and explain and somehow they're they're treated differently and I and and I want to dispel that I, I I'm no special mm. than than anybody else and, and and actually I think I should not be asked to do things outside of what I would ask other people and again that might sound a bit controversial <laughs> and maybe I'm missing something here. But, um, but yeah, that's where I am. Mm, this is very interesting discussion about 
what, what is leadership yeah. and what is leadership in an environment of high autonomy trust like um, and by the way i think that you know there's there's a difference between leadership and decision making and inspiring other people and giving them confidence in in, in what, what you're doing and a vision to align themselves with and then i don't have to explain why you know generative ai and digital twins are going to be important over the next three years but people trust my expertise and, 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 and judgment so that's that's what, what I'm, I'm, I'm good at and uh, and so and so leadership doesn't necessarily mean explaining yourself it, it, it might just mean being able to inspire people and, and unorchestrate them of course this all gets quite controversial when we start talking about expiring people this is where we meet trust at quite an extreme can we trust our society to rejig work to involve a better deal for human beings and I know for a fact that from this and previous conversations with Daniel, that he has a new vision for humans that involve a lot less work and a lot more fulfillment. And if only it were him orchestrating the ethics of all AI companies and regulating them, I would feel much more comfortable. And based on the chess grandmaster example, he does not believe that leaders should have to explain themselves in all cases. Now, I trust Daniel and I'd be really happy with this. However, I don't know if I'd be happy for most senior leaders to stop explaining themselves. Most of them don't do it enough and people don't feel part of the vision. They don't understand where the company is going and they don't feel part of it. Well, let's go back to Daniel for part three to discuss this further, perhaps next year. Moving on to our next guest, Chris Fippin, who at the time was CEO of Hatless, a software and digital design agency that employs students. Now, before we have Chris's clip, I should probably mention that he is 24 years old, or he was 24 years old at the time of interviewing, and he certainly is was the wisest 24-year-old I have ever met. And he has the most uncanny ability to understand and leverage young people at work. The core of our business is bringing in people that have very little experience. They've got a brain on them, though, and they want to work, that they want to, they want to achieve something. The attitudes, right? Yeah, the attitude's super important. Um, now, there are sometimes that we get someone with the right attitude and we do really struggle to train them to do the actual thing. And those are kind of unfortunate scenarios, but I'll always work hard to like, okay, well, let's find you something else because I like you, I care about you, you're my responsibility, let's figure something out. What's the story here? But a lot of them will then struggle with imposter syndrome. And I think imposter syndrome is more linked to that shame idea from, from earlier. It's not about what you think of yourself, now, for some people it is, I don't think I'm capable, but a lot of it is actually, I perceive other people as more capable, and if they, mm -hmm. the people I trust to be capable, see me, they'll see a fraud. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, there's a layer of separation. But the easiest way for me to dismantle that um, is to point out to them that nobody else knows what they're doing. The experts that they hold in such high regard in, I'm just, these, in these companies, these CEOs. Yeah, they see, yeah, yeah, yeah. look at me, like I'm, I'm, I'm a young CEO. Uh, I, I will fully, I, I am heart on my sleeve. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got some experience. I've got, I've read a lot of books. Um, I've experienced the world more so than most people. Um, I, I can make a better educated guess. You could come up with a better answer than me. And I trust you to do better than me. If I can tell you the stuff that I've got, we can work together and I hope that by the, end of the, by the time that they graduate and move on, they're better at those things than me. Now, on the development side, they will get much better than me very quickly. I don't have the time to dedicate to that right now. But there are certain clients that I like having who 
they run successful businesses and you get in a meeting with them and, and they're, I don't know how to say this without sounding really grandiose, that they're mere mortals like the rest of us. Hmm. They would give off typically this vibe of being like, oh yes, I am super big and important and powerful and I've built this multi-million dollar company. And you sit in a room with them or you, you have a coffee with them and it's just like, yeah, I just haven't, haven't kind of winging it. Yeah, winging <laughs> it. I like to have barbecues with my friends just like the rest of you. Yeah. Uh, I, I like seeing the number in my bank account go up. And, it, uh, and a lot of my teams see that and they're like, it shatters their worldview a little bit initially. I, 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 um, I view it as a process of um, uh, managed disillusionment. But I think it's a powerful form of disillusionment because it breaks down a limiting story. The story is there are people out there better than me and there's something unattainable about that. But then I also meet friends of mine who are just having kids for the first time. They're like, I'm not ready. What do I do about this? And I think parenting is like an ultimate form of leadership. You can't escape it really. <laughs> um, and has huge implications. Um, and they'll have kids and I'll be like, okay, well, let's break that illusion slightly. Were your parents ready? You turned out okay. And they're mm. like, yeah, but I was traumatized by this and that. And it's like <laughs> everybody's parents We're traumatized, all traumatized by everybody. <laughs> but yeah. take the stuff you've learned, do a good job with it. Mm. That's as good as anybody can do. He also talks about authenticity, power, and pain tolerance in ways that I think are really practical for leaders. I'm very much a heart, heart is very much on my sleeve kind of guy. Most people know most things about me. And I think people trust authentic people more. Um, I think if people know that I am someone who struggles, but gets through it and I have ways of doing that, and that even when that's the case, I'm there for them. Mm. That's, I think, a really powerful thing. I think it also, as much as we don't talk about it very much, power is a thing, it does exist. I think we're almost afraid to claim power. There's something you talked about, about being authentic as a leader and able, what you just said that was really interesting, able to connect to, my words, not yours, your own suffering, mm -hmm. experience your own suffering, move through it, share some of it, share how you got there, and know that you can do this and hold someone else's suffering at the yeah. same time. I think we're almost afraid to claim power because... Well, there's a couple of things. One is there's a social stigma to it. But the second is, well, if I claim power now, then I've got to uphold the power. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure. Oh my gosh. And so we find creative ways of shirking it in kind of moralizable fashions. I don't think there's actually- Like what? Like how? Well, I get the sense that culturally today, the, the concept of, oh, he couldn't hurt a fly is seen as virtuous. Mm -hmm. It's good, you know, he's, he's harmless, that's good. I don't see that as a good thing. I, I like the people that I'm around to be capable who are, uh, to, to be people who are capable of doing hard, dangerous things and choose not to, or choose to only use it when it's absolutely necessary and right to do so. For me, the strength thing is super important. The powerful thing is super important. People who can own their suffering, wear it on their sleeve and say, here are my faults and my foibles. Here are the things that make me hurt. You can know all of that because even when you know that I have those problems, you can't do anything to hurt me. It's the ultimate show of personal strength. And I think people believe in strong leaders. I've always said the only prerequisite to leadership is good pain tolerance. Because it doesn't matter what you do. If you're in a leadership position, 
by definition, you're pushing the envelope. You are, you are the avant-garde. You are the, the object that the wind will hit first. And there's no way to do that without getting kind of bustled around a little bit. And you have to kind of grit and bear it. Mm. So uh, the suffering is part of the journey. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah. So, so a lot of my kind of ethos comes from the, the kind of stoic literature. And one of the big sentences in, in or big ideas in that is the obstacle is the way. Any leader that starts quoting stoic philosophy is definitely after my own heart. Indeed, I've decided that I would like Chris to be my friend forever. So if you're listening, Chris, I'm afraid there's no escape. I need a young, wise person like you in my life. And finally, on to Tom Hall, who is General Manager at Lego Education International. I particularly enjoyed this interview because it took place at the Lego offices. So I got to see some of their nice gadgets and um, yeah, models there, which was cool. And what I like about Tom as an interviewee is really how self-reflective he is and how well he manages himself and manages his mood. Now, self-management is one of those initial key traits I pull out in the Next Level Leadership book. So there's nine of them and self-management is one of the first. And it's really core because it's great role modeling to manage yourself well. And two, it's also really good mood management. So if we show up in a mood that helps other people show up well, then that has great energy for them. So by really looking after our stress levels, our mood, we help other people show up better too, and we can be much more present for them. And intentionality and presence are a really important part of Tom's style. Anyhow, on to Tom's take. I think you've got to be all in and, you know, you, you can have off days, we all do, but I think you have to make a conscious choice in this leadership role. I'm going to be open, I'm going to be myself, I'm going to be very present. That's a choice I'm, you know, I, I think about the things that I've changed in my style. Um, I'm, I'm so easily distractible. And so I really have to make a conscious choice to not have my phone near me or not have sort of things buzzing at me because I can go like into a million different directions mm. of distraction. So staying so you, so you present. And, you and it? everyone else, I mean, like this is a, a time, isn't it? It's almost like a superpower to be present in this day. I, I, yeah, that's a great phrase. Um, I am working really hard on it. And sometimes it's really effective. I actually have in my notebook, a, like I have a, a, a sort of score things that I do. And I've got like, you know, have I exercised? Have I meditated? Have I shown up with my values? Have I been present and focused? Mm. And I sort of mark by week, like how I've gone on that thing. Mm. And it helps me track like, again, it, like, am I, am I in balance genu generally? Like, am I sleeping well? Am I kind of looking after myself? And I can see the weeks that I've really enjoyed or I sort of end a Friday feeling pretty energised. Mm. So you're marking yourself ticks. on these things yeah. on like a weekly basis. So literally kind of yeah. I go through the weeks and I'll, I'll mark them down. Um, that just helps me kind of, again, being intentional. I'm not saying I do this religiously because it's that wouldn't be real life. But I will then look at a week and be like, well, how, how was my energy this week? And can I link that to the choices that I made? And generally I can. Mm. Yeah. So intentionality and presence and, and focusing on that presence. Say and what you mean by presence. I think, you know, choosing for your... I'm not a multitasker and, and, and I'm, I'm sort of pleased that I guess I'm reading more and more that none of us naturally are and it's probably a, 
an unbelievable state to get yourself to. But for me, presence is like being all in this moment, this conversation, this plan, and then knowing that I've organized myself to go on to the next thing and I'll deal with that next. But for now, this is what's important. And I think when you're leading as well, I've had this experience of being on the receiving end of presence and on the receiving end of sort of distracted leadership. It can feel magical when you have a very present leader who you can tell is visibly interested in your work, interested in you as a person, wants to get somewhere with you versus this is just a process I'm going through because it's on my calendar for the day. And again, I think that is a, it can really sort of make or break team dynamics in terms mm. of you being fully in the room. So I try really hard on that. And it's it's an evolving process. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really, it's a really key topic, I think, presence. I'm a big believer. Well, it's not even a belief, it's a fact, isn't it? Life can be really short. And I think we've got limited time to go at everything therefore make it count and therefore if you're going to have a conversation that could be very dry make sure you know what you want to get out of it and then move on to the next thing and it's just like it's that sense of yeah intentionality and focus but you know that focus then does need downtime so I'm again you know the 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 planning and the exercise and the, the diet and the sleep all of those things are important to then make yourself show up well but there's a time of day where you just have to check out and you're like, I'm done. And back to Chris Fippin's theme of pain tolerance, Tom Hall also does this rather well. And he's clearly very good at helping others deal with their difficulty too. And I think I have reasonably high pain tolerance. My wife would laugh. I once had back pain and cried. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I, um, I, well, I do. I think, a I, think on a, I think on a work level, I, I do have um, high tolerance for kind of um, disruption and, and chaos. I like change. Again, and change can come in many, many different flavours. It can be very sort of digestible and manageable. It can be enormous and scary. Um, what gives you that trait? Because that's that's not I don't hear a lot of people say like I kind of can handle a lot of complexity and change and well I I I'm quite good at zooming out and sort of putting things in perspective and lots of different things help with that but you know whether it's the meditation or it's you know busy family life or outside interests it's always I can I can sort of compartmentalize and put things in um relative relativity relatively easy and do you actually in your mind zoom, zoom out? i do oh totally yeah so is I, there I, something there's some stuff going down yeah i and I, I i will um literally sort of think about myself looking out looking down on the world from a, a spaceship and like how big a problem is this in this if i'm looking in at the, the country like yeah. and it generally helps to make it feel quite tiny and manageable i'm not saying that that solves everything but I think the ability to put things in perspective before the end of a day is out, I can do that. And, and that, I think, builds more resilience of, you know, do we need to panic? Do we just need to actually step back and start building a plan to make this right? Um, so I don't know where that comes from as a trait, actually. Um, but in it's your, that sense of... Anything you're upbringing? I don't know. I don't know if, you know, this sort of don't panic, um, you know, I don't know if... I don't think it's British stuff, stiff upper lipness, because that wasn't really, like, my upbringing. Mm. Um, but it, it's just a sense of how complex can this be and then, therefore, break it down into simple things. And how do you help your 
team with that because it's um I feel like that's a quite a a strong leadership capability to to better hold someone comes at you and they vomit their problem mm. and go <laughs> Tom so blah, blah, you know there's mm. all this stuff going down now now what I will make I will say I think very um like the words I will use will be like well let's step back like let's put this in perspective put it on the table like what's the problem statement what are you trying mm. to solve there's often all these like competing things of like yeah. and there can be a mixture of personal and work and just a mountain of work things like well in this particular scenario that's freaking you out what's the problem statement first of all put that down what are your options to try and solve it and I don't know if that is a a coaching style but ultimately it is a sense of like well let's just get it down to the absolute essence and hopefully simplify there's just lots of swirl and noise coming at people all mm. the time so I think I can do that relatively mm. easily sounds a nice coaching style one question I quite often ask uh, clients who are when there's a lot in it is what is the question you're asking yourself because mm. we, we have all this noise like you describe noise so much noise now we're busy yeah things pulling families what, what is it you're trying to answer and I like that then distilling the options it kind of helping yeah. people kind of solve their own problem and and you know and how can I help you ultimately what would be useful for me to do here uh, they might not have thought about that. You know, uh, what do you think your options are going ahead? And, you know, are we going to make a decision or do you need longer to think about it? Um, and hopefully that makes a difference. Well, that coaching style certainly does make a difference, Tom. And for me, training leaders in coaching skills is one of the most directly impactful things that I do. And that's because strong presence, so training to be more present and training in great questioning can be applied immediately. So it's really, really practical. Well, that's a wrap for 2023. I'm Ruth Ferenga and you've been listening to the 2023 Conscious Leaders Podcast Highlights episode. Now, I would love to hear any thoughts from you or feedback about this podcast in general, or maybe there's a guest you'd like to hear featured. Now, you can email me ruth at consciousleaders.org.uk if you'd like to suggest someone or offer any feedback and I'd also love your public feedback so if you would give this podcast a rating or a review that would be amazing well right I better go get back to my betwixtmas and hoovering up some treats and I wish you well for 2024